Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Pandemic Check-In. I'm Ben Adair at Western Sound, and today I'm joined by a special guest rather than our usual mental health professionals, because I just read this really fascinating article in The Atlantic. The Atlantic, as I'm sure you know, has been killing it with its coverage of coronavirus, all the political battles, covering the latest science, and also just really provocative ideas. And that's what this article was. It was a very provocative idea. Uh, the article is called, if you haven't read it, you should go seek it out. It's called Quarantine Fatigue is Real. And the author is Julia Marcus, who is a professor in the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School. So Julia's on the Zoom with me right now. Julia, thanks a lot for talking today. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, I was, I was going to start by giving a summary of your article, but I'll let you do that by way of a very interesting story that you tell in the article about the last time the United States was ravaged, being ravaged by an epidemic of an unknown virus killing thousands and thousands of people. Could you set the scene for us and tell us what happened that changed the way regular people were dealing with it? Yeah, so I, I'm an HIV researcher, so I was really thinking about COVID from this perspective of um, what happened in the early 80s when HIV hit. And um, we didn't actually know, and I say we, I was an infant, but um, the broader we didn't know what this virus was. It didn't even have a name yet and um, didn't really know how to prevent it. But it started to become clear that it was being sexually transmitted. And the there wasn't really a great sense of um, safer sex at that point. The main recommendation that gay men were getting was just don't have sex. But as we all know, as human beings, that's a tough recommendation to follow. And there was a revolutionary moment when a couple of community activists who were gay men in the community just um, worked with their doctor on um, some guidance around safer sex. And what they did was they laid out not just condom use, but all the different potential sexual acts you could engage in and the spectrum of risk so that people mm. could make informed decisions knowing they knew that sustained abstinence forever was not going to be an option. So they knew their community needed this guidance and it had an enormous impact. I read a ton of uh, articles and I haven't read the actual studies. I read articles about studies about abstinence only sex ed that happens in many states, many communities around the country and how those communities actually have higher incidents of teenagers having sex and teenage and teenage pregnancy. It's kind of kind of similar, right? Like like if you just say everything's bad, don't give any information about it, then people who choose to do those things don't have any information. That's exactly right. And that's what the research shows about abstinence-only education. For example, for teens, many of them are going to have sex anyway, and they're not going to know about condoms. They're not going to know about contraception and birth control. And it's just, it's a missed opportunity to help protect those teens when they do go ahead and have sex. So how is that similar to what's happening now with coronavirus? Well, in early March, we... Um, we were told to stay home. And that was exactly what we needed. We needed to catalyze this huge change in human behavior and try to flatten the curve. And we kind of thought at the beginning, this will be a few weeks, right? And then we thought, okay, maybe it'll be a couple months. And now it's become clear that this is going to be many more months, if not years. And we have to find a way to um, do this that's sustainable. But at this point, the main messaging from um, public health authorities is 
abstinence only. It's stay home. And people are already making decisions every day around navigating their risk. Um, uh, you know, you could think about the teens who are like, well, maybe I'll do this one thing, but I don't really know what, you know, how risky it is. And they don't really have guidance because they've just been told abstinence only. Yeah, we've been talking about that in my family. Like, okay, how risky is it to go to the store? How risky is it to go um, outside to the park? How risky is it if we go to our friend's backyard and do like a social distance hangout? And like, we don't really know what the risks are. I mean, there's been like articles here and there, like there's some articles in the last week about forming quarantines, which I thought was just a great pun, uh, quarantine. Um, I hadn't heard that yet. I've heard about <laughs> bubbles, but I yeah, hadn't bu- heard it's about the same thing. It's the same thing. I just really like quarantine. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. So like, how do you navigate that risk? And there's just like, there's no way that we should know. Yeah. And I think the the danger, if we don't really have, you know, evidence-based guidance on that spectrum of risk is that people will fixate on things that are really not high risk. I mean, I've gotten a lot of questions about, can you get this virus from picking up your mail? And it's like, well, I guess there's like a theoretical possibility that the person who delivered your mail, you know, think about like the whole chain of events that would have to happen for you to get coronavirus from your mail. It's pretty unlikely, right? But people are really concerned about it well and I, I remember like at the beginning it was like oh you have to disinfect your groceries you know you have to put your packages from amazon in the garage for three days and then there were sort of articles that came later that were like no no don't you don't actually need to worry about your groceries you kind of need to worry about doorknobs but not really so even the messages i mean it's it's hard because our knowledge about the virus has been changing so much even week to week Uh, And then messages about risk have been changing alongside of that. There was an article written by a uh, UMass, I want to say a University of Massachusetts professor, an epidemiologist, basically like trying to come up with a playbook about what risk is and what's not risky. Can you go outside? Should you be inside? Um, Where how, how are you assessing risk? And how do you know what you're assessing for risk now is going to be the same two weeks from now? Yeah, you make a great point about how some of the mixed messages and the confusion around this are about just the science evolving. This is a new virus that appeared a few months ago, and scientists are working really hard to research what's going on with transmission and where the risks are. And some some messages are going to change over time as the science evolves really rapidly. Um, but also, I think we do have a pretty good sense now of what the highest risk settings and activities are and what the lowest risk ones are. I think there might be some fuzziness in between, but we know that a high risk setting is going to be um, people who, you know, p- people in close contact in a, a crowded indoor setting with poor ventilation for an extended period of time, right? Like that is a clear high risk situation. Low risk, um, staying at home and with your family, right? And then there's all these things in between. So, um, you know, going think. let's think about Mother's Day for a minute. I think a lot of people made a lot of decisions on Mother's Day around, should I see my mom? And how should I see her? And should I hug her? Should I not? And you can think about a spectrum of risk in that situation. Like, you know, having a a brunch, a full-on brunch indoors with lots of family, that's going to be higher risk. But sitting in lawn chairs six feet apart and bringing your own snacks is going to be fairly low risk. One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about and that we've been talking about a lot on this show specifically is that the idea of coronavirus-free, like that's not the only definition of healthy 
and that health includes Absolutely. health includes mental health, uh, and that the actions we take to stay coronavirus free they may not be the best actions we can take for our overall health. And I think this is this idea of like everything is either risky or not risky. You you put in your article this idea of like binary ideas of risk assessment. It's either risk or it's not risk. Um, that's neither true for all the activities, and it's not true for like staying at home either. And it's not necessarily the best thing that you can do for your health. That's right. It, risk. What is risk? Risk is probability, and probability ranges from zero to one. It's a continuum. Right. It's not one thing versus another. And you're exactly right that a focus on infectious disease prevention at the exclusion of everything else is reductive. Health in, involves more than that. And if for, for the people who are completely content or, or you know, discontent but not seriously struggling with our current situation of, of distancing, I encourage them to keep doing it because that is low risk, right? So that we want to reduce risk as much as possible. But for the people who are really struggling and have and really need human contact, we need to find ways to support them in getting it that are low risk for transmission. Mm-hmm. So give us some tips, like what are some low risk situations that we can do to help our mental health, help our sense of community, help our sense of connection here? Well, there's the the lawn chairs on Mother's Day example. Yeah. And then just in general, being outdoors is going to be, it's both um, good for our health and our um, mood. And also it's a low risk setting for transmission. And um, that includes potentially going on a walk with somebody. And sure, you, you want to try to be six feet apart. But in general, just walking near somebody is going to be a fairly low risk for transmission. And I want to be careful right now because I certainly don't want to encourage anyone to take more risks than what are, you know, what's currently in public health guidance. And really, my message is about how that guidance needs to change. So I want to mm. not be giving personal recommendations. But there is a difference between crowded indoor settings and outdoor settings where we can have space from each other. Well, and that's just it too, right? Like I was thinking the other sort of, you know, to go to the other extreme, you get the kind of liberate crowd who are saying, you know, we don't need to do anything, uh, but they're kind of ignoring all the risk and saying there is no risk at all, but there is risk. We just need to be really smart about how we choose to uh, encounter it. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last thing we want is for people to say, you know what, I'm just uh, screw all this. I'm going to go back to business as usual. And, um, that, that would be a potential disaster. So for people on both sides of the spectrum, we have, um, we, we need to try to find some middle ground to kind of support everyone in something that's sustainable. There's uh, one other thing that you talked about. I mean, a lot of things you talked to interest about in your article that were so interesting, uh, but you brought up shame specifically as a social mechanism that has real impacts on people. So how does, how does shame factor into all of this? I think shame happens when we have this abstinence-only messaging where we stigmatize everything that's not abstinence. And, and then people... Um, it, then then people have a tendency to start shaming people for their behaviors. So when we see somebody who's doing something that we think is um, against public health guidelines right now, we may feel angry and we may um, shame them either in person or on social media or, you know, we see articles in the lay press that are showing these crowded beaches. And, right. and there is this like, you know, aren't these people stupid and selfish? And um, and it might I mean, it's understandable, I think, that desire to shame, but it doesn't really have the effect that we want it to have. And looking at 
HIV prevention research, for example, when we shame, for example, condomless sex, it doesn't make people stop having condomless sex. It just makes them not talk about it. And the result mm. is that they don't tell their doctor they're having condomless sex. And so their doctor doesn't test them for HIV or STIs. And it just makes things worse. Mm. And so the last thing we want is for people to feel such shame about their um, choices right now that, for example, if they imagine like contact tracers contacting someone and saying, were you at that party? And they're terrified to say they were at that party because of this kind of um, culture of shame. Right. It's going to backfire. We've seen that in Korea with the new uh, little cell that developed. And they say it's about this one guy who went to a bunch of clubs, but people are embarrassed to say that they went to those clubs. So they put false names and it's really messed up how they're trying to contact trace and inform people. Right. And that's actually a situation where you have multiple kinds of stigma interacting, because I believe that story was around gay clubs. Right. So it was like not just that people were um, taking coronavirus risk, but they're also gay. And so then there's like in a very homophobic environment. Right. So there's a lot going on there. How do we deal with it when um, with, you know, without without shame, if you want to try to take shame out of it, how do you handle it when some people are more comfortable with other types of risk than you are? Or, you know, you see people doing things that you think just aren't safe. How do you let them know about it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think coming at it, first of all, from a perspective of assuming, not assuming the worst um, and actually assuming the best of people and recognizing that you don't know everything about their situation. When you see people at a park, gathering in a park, you see a group of people, it those people may be in the same household. They may be in two households that have decided to very carefully quarantine together. A quarantine. Let's just use that, A quarantine, let's use that exactly, word again. Quarantine. If, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> um, and ultimately, unless somebody is putting you at risk, and imagine, I mean, that is a situation too, right? Where somebody is close to you, you don't feel safe because they're not wearing a mask. Instead of saying something hostile to them, you could say, excuse me, can I please have some space because you're not wearing a mask? And just it's just remember that shaming them it may me give you some sense of control in the moment but it's not actually going to help the overall situation and and when we think about what we need to do right now as like a collective species <laughs> um it, it, you know to to get through this incredibly challenging time for our planet creating a culture of hostility and and you know toxic shaming is really not what we need i think if our regular um our regular hosts uh, of mental health professionals were here. They would say, use I statements, right? Like say, hey, can I have some more space here? Rather than, hey, can you do something yep. or other? Um, talk about yourself. Stand up for yourself. Um, don't be afraid to assert yourself, but keep it on you. Yeah, I, that sounds great to me. Um, we just have a little bit of time left. I know you're very busy uh doing a whole bunch of things that are, are helping people. So uh, I just have a couple more questions. Um, how does authority come into this? And where should authority come into this? You know, we've seen in New York, we've seen, um, you know, the enforcement of dis- different social distancing really happening disproportionately on communities of color. Uh, we're seeing out here in California that the police are really reticent to do anything, you know, in ways that maybe are damaging to public health as well. Um, How does authority fit into this if it does? Yeah, it's a hard question. Um, I see this to actually be relevant to shaming. Um, 
you could think of criminalization almost as an extension of shaming. Um, and the way that it's playing out in New York, I think, is really unhelpful. Right. Where um, the 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 public health authority has been given to the police who are trying to enforce um, better health behavior. But what they're doing is cracking down on the people who are most at risk of the virus to begin with, who are now getting it from both ends. Mm -hmm. And that's inevitable with policing, unfortunately, in our current you know, uh, just the way environment that, yeah, the, way of, that the criminal justice system works right now, unfortunately. Yeah, it's, it's ultimately there's structural racism and that's the environment we're living in. And when you police, that's that's how it's going to play out. Um, so I, I and, and when we, uh, you know, again, I think from a perspective of HIV, criminalizing HIV has not been helpful. Right. Um, so, you know, making it a crime to not tell somebody that you have HIV before you have sex with them. Totally unhelpful. Um, and here it's different. I mean, HIV and COVID are different. And I want to acknowledge that they're different viruses with different, you know, transmission dynamics. And um, the risk is different of, let's say, having a house party right now. The risk is potentially much more explosive than, you know, a single sexual encounter. Um, but I do think we need to be very careful about how we use policing um, for public health purposes. Does, does, so does authority fit in anywhere? I would hope that public health authority is where we could be looking. And unfortunately, there's kind of a vacuum there right now. Right. Um, we haven't really been hearing from the CDC throughout this. And um, and that's a real loss. And without that, I think we are going to have to see state and local health departments stepping in and taking the lead and sharing resources to um, create harm reduction guidance that can be used across the country. It's really funny. Um I mean, funny, not funny, 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 sad and aggravating in the way that, uh, you know, when you we talked about HIV and sort of the early days of HIV and AIDS, it is sort of a metaphorical playbook, even in the sense that the government is so hostile to actually doing good public health around it. And we see that happening again here, right, with yep. the federal government being totally hostile towards positive or helpful public health messages. Um, is there anything that I didn't ask you or that you want to emphasize? I don't think so. I really appreciate having this conversation with you. It's been fun. It's been really great. Well, thank you again, uh, Julia Marcus from the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School. The article, again, is called Quarantine Fatigue is Real. It's in the Atlantic. Thank you so much for writing it. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me.